The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Samaritas, the state's largest private foster care and adoption agency. However, Samaritas also provides a number of other services around the state. They are one of the largest refugee resettlement agencies in Michigan. They serve homeless families, persons with disabilities, abused and trafficked women. They also provide market rate and affordable housing for seniors and HUD housing for families and also have skilled nursing, memory care and rehab communities in Grand Rapids, Cadillac and Saginaw. Samaritas, we thank them for their support here at Deadline Detroit. Good day, everybody. Happy Monday. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. So glad you could join me. And on today's program, we've got a lot to talk about. There has been a ton of news when it comes to the automotive industry that's happened over the last few days, whether it's the basically sudden, sudden demise of the relationship between Fiat Chrysler and Renault. We'll talk a bit about that. Paul Eisenstein of the DetroitBureau.com is going to join me to tell us all about what's happening there. Then a little bit later on in the program, it's going to be a really interesting conversation. Rachel Alternative is going to be my guest. She started a new foundation designed to help kickstart redevelopment in an east side Detroit neighborhood over in the McDougal Hunt area. We'll tell you a lot more about that as well. It's a conversation I had while I was up on Mackinac Island, and I wanted to share it with you. So that's all coming up on the Craig Folly Show here on Deadline Detroit. Stick around. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Happy Monday. Glad to have you with me today. And it has been a turbulent week in the automotive industry. Fiat Chrysler trying to figure out what next steps are going to be now that their merger with Renault has basically fallen apart. Joining me right now to give context to all of this and other things happening in the industry is my friend Paul Eisenstein. He is the publisher of TheDetroitBureau.com. You also see his work on the NBC family of companies, and he is a frequent guest here. Uh, does have a bit of laryngitis from what I understand. Paul, welcome, and uh, hopefully you can suffer through this. Yeah, well, it's not never suffering, but uh, I will sound a little bit croaky here. <laughs> well, it just makes you sound like a grizzled veteran, so, you know, nothing wrong with that. Well, Paul, I mean, there's another story at the DetroitBureau.com that I was looking at how stretched people are when it comes to their car payments, how much money people owe on vehicles, how long their their loans are these days. Do you get a sense that we are reaching sort of a breaking point on what people are willing to pay and how long they're willing to pay for these vehicles? Yeah, yeah well, this is a big issue uh, to read from that story, which was done by my, uh, my associate, Mike Strong. The average amount borrowed to buy a new vehicle hit a record of $32,187 during the first quarter of the year. That's according to Experian, which tracks uh, auto loans around the country. Uh, and um, even used vehicles, the average loan is now at a new, re- a new record of $20,137. SUVs. Right. Uh, that's a major problem. But Interestingly enough, even on passenger cars, people have been tending to move up market. This is great for profitability uh, because the automakers are seeing that motorists are opting for uh, more features. You know, maybe the the navigation system, maybe the heated and cooled seats and so on. They're going for the higher trim levels. Uh, But the fact is it's running prices up. Uh, we we saw that the actual price of a typical vehicle is now in the mid thirty thousand dollar range. Be, you know, before you even factor in loans, and the automakers are really worried that this is pricing many people out of the market. 
Well, I mean, a five-year loan used to be an outlier, right? You know, a 60-month loan was something like you did, you know, some of the, I remember some of the companies started offering that, that opened up certain vehicles to people, but now we're seeing seven, eight-year loans on these vehicles that can be made. And obviously the longevity of vehicles is a lot better than it used to be, but that's a long time to be paying for something uh, that, you know, is going to lose a ton of value pretty damn fast. Oh yeah, that is a lot of money. I mean, it's not unusual now to see six, seven, even eight-year loans. Uh, And it's one of the reasons that people are continuing to look for alternatives. Uh, Leasing has come back strong. There are some concerns that we may be seeing too much leasing. Uh, One of the problems with leasing is that the industry can get hit. If, If used car values plummet, if the if the economy goes into uh, any sort of downturn, uh, we could see a situation where all those vehicles coming back off of lease don't have new customers to pick them up, and the manufacturers could be writing off a lot of money down the road. Well, and at a time when they're trying to invest in new technologies, I mean, there's what, I think five different stories on your site right now talking about electrification plans from people like Porsche and Audi and everybody else uh, that is that is looking to do this. I mean, we're talking about a major transition period for the industry. When you look at the level of destabilization being created, not by business forces, but by political forces, adding to the already significant business pressure, uh, yeah. perfect yeah. storm comes to mind. Yeah, the industry is spending at least... 100 billion, that's billion with a B, to prepare for electrification. This morning in Tokyo, uh, Toyota's EVP Shigeki Tirashi uh, announced that they are moving up by five years a plan to electrify their entire lineup uh, to the point where they expect to have fully half of their global sales made up by vehicles using some sort of battery power. Now, that includes conventional hybrids like the Prius, plug-ins like the Prius Prime, and pure battery electric vehicles, which they currently don't have but will be adding soon. Uh, And that's, of course, not just Toyota. Uh, We are seeing VW spending tens of billions of dollars and planning to roll out 50 electrified vehicles uh, that are long range. The first, called the Audi e-tron, is just going on sale. Uh, You will have the, uh, the ID3 carrying the VW brand coming soon, and the Porsche Taycan, or Taycan, uh, the first all-electric from that brand, General Motors, everybody. They're all getting into it, and they're getting into it aggressively. Uh, it's a lot of money, and unfortunately, because of the high cost of the technology, they have to swallow a lot of that. They have to have lower profit margins, at least for the time being. Uh, The good news is Mark Royce, who's the president of General Motors, said he expects that parity where costs come down on EVs to the point where they're comparable to that of a similar gas vehicle should happen relatively soon when he's not saying the exact year. But that probably still won't be till close to the the middle of the next decade. And by the way, there's another story that we have on the site, uh, which talks about what this all means. Uh, Toyota, for example, just announced that they're going to partner with Subaru. Sure. develop an all-new platform purely for electric vehicles. Uh, earlier this week, BMW and Jaguar Land Rover announced the partnership because they need to spread out the cost. They'll share a lot of the technology that they will develop in a joint venture. And you may recall Ford announced not only a joint venture with Volkswagen in January to, uh, to work on commercial vehicles, but they said that they are also going to work out a joint venture to, again, spread out the cost by jointly developing future battery cars. 
they haven't uh, locked down that deal yet, but I understand that they're moving forward fairly aggressively. Uh, well, this is a real challenge of the industry. Well, let me let me remind folks, my guest right now is Paul Eisenstein. He's the publisher at thedetroitbureau.com. Uh, Paul, you know, you see all these partnerships developing around EVs, and and I have a feeling these are sort of precursors to potentially some some greater consolidation within in, in the industry coming forward uh, as, again, these costs need to be shared across this. You saw Fiat Chrysler reach out to Renault. It seemed like a pretty darn good match. Uh, politics in France seems to be getting in the way. At least that's Fiat Chrysler's assessment of the situation. Uh, talk a little bit about what was what was envisioned there and, and what blew it up. Yeah, well, uh, th- there are some debates over what really is going on and uh, why the deal broke down. Uh, for those who aren't in the loop, on, on, in May, on May 27th, uh, Fiat Chrysler, having talked for months with Renault, said that it would like to have a, quote, merger of equals. And the Renault board gave initial thumbs up. But they needed to take the next step, which was uh, really to give a formal reply. They were supposed to do that this week on Tuesday. And the board meeting got delayed and delayed and stretched on. And on Wednesday, uh, just hours after they were prepared to, to issue a press release announcing agreement, they instead sent out, a, well, FCA sent out an announcement saying, never mind, we're calling the deal off. Now, I've spoken to people in a number of places about this, and one of the key problems was the French government. They own 15% of Renault and have an oversized voice in what the board does. And unfortunately, they kept dragging their feet. Uh, They wanted the vote delayed until meetings with the folks at Nissan, Renault's longtime partner in Japan. the interesting thing is I've been told that while Nissan abstained from the vote, they were willing to go along. So it appears that they were not the obstacle, but that the French government, which was pressing FCA and Renault for a lot of concessions, they wanted the headquarters in France. They wanted job and plant guarantees and all sorts of other things that just they kept piling on more and more demands. And FCA finally said, that's not the deal we proposed. Well, and, and you take a look at it. I mean, I, I hate to bring this back to to the tariff argument, but it certainly seems as if the ultranationalism uh, that we're seeing uh, on the international sphere is having an impact on these types of global companies and, and their negotiations. And France obviously has been dealing with the, yed, uh, the Yellow Vest protests for a long time where people are worried about jobs in France. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is this something where Fiat Chrysler tries to rekindle this with Renault? Is that like the most logical partner or do they start looking somewhere else? Well, I was told by a, a very well-placed source in, in, right into the negotiations that you will never say never were the French government to say, oops, we blew it. Uh, they might be open. And here's the thing. Uh, by having this dropped, Renault and thus the French government are in a bit of a bind. Uh, they have a real problem with Nissan following the arrest of the uh, the, the, the group's CEO and founder, Carlos Ghosn. Renault has been facing pressure from the Japanese to give Nissan and Mitsubishi, the other partner, more of a say. And in fact, by tying up with FCA, they were back in the driver's seat. Now they're a bit in a mess. So could the French government go, oops, pardon, uh, uh, monsieur, will you come back to the bargaining table? Sorry, my accent is terrible. Uh, <laughs> but, right. uh, but would they try to get 
FCA to return? It's possible. And would FCA be open? I was told, quote, never say never. However, there are other options. They can continue to go it alone. They can continue to look at other alliances. And one possibility would be with the other French automaker, PSA Group, which they have a relationship with, right? Peugeot Citroën. And they have a relationship already. And they had discussed a merger before. And frankly, the guy who runs that show, uh, Carlos Tavares, who used to be a big wig at Nissan, is considered one of the best executives in the auto industry. So FCA does have other options, but I think they will still continue to look for a possible merger partner. All right. Paul Eisenstein, publisher of TheDetroitBureau.com. We always appreciate your time, sir. Have a great day. Great to be with you. Craig Foley Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. We are live streaming all of the interviews that I do here on the island. And, of course, I'm going to be packaging a number of them as well as part of the podcast that I'll be putting out over the next several days. Uh, we've got a, a lot of guests that I'm going to be interviewing that won't fit into one day's stuff. So it's going to be materials that I have for, for days and weeks, hopefully. Um, but I wanted to have this one on live because I think it's really important. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time at the Detroit Land Bank. Our goal, was, of course, was neighborhood revitalization through a lot of different strategies. And we worked with a number of organizations and city, or, and city programs to revitalize neighborhoods. But seeing other people get involved in this, the philanthropic sector has been incredibly rewarding. And we have a new one. The Alternative Foundation is about to invest some significant funds on the east side of Detroit in the McDougal-Hunt neighborhood. And uh, for those of you that don't know it, it's east side, Charlevoix area, over that way, over by the Heidelberg Project, all that kind of stuff. Um, Rachel Alternative is here. That is her name. She is the founder of the Alternative Foundation, a new foundation here in Michigan. Welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about the idea for this um, and, and why a foundation. What was what was important for you and, and why was Detroit the place that you wanted to do it? Okay. I, um, I'm with the Cedar Tree Foundation first. Uh, that is a Boston-based foundation. And the original programming areas are were sustainable agriculture and environmental health. Mm-hmm. Within the sustainable agriculture uh, program area, we trickled down into urban agriculture. And with all the vacant land in Detroit, there's a big urban agriculture movement, sure as is. I'm sure you know. So the Cedar Tree Foundation started funding in that area about 2002. And within the foundation, the board members have their own discretionary grant funds. So I, with my discretionary funds, continue to invest in Detroit in youth entrepreneurship, food systems. Uh, I was able to combine my passion for the food industry with the philanthropic dollars. And beyond that, uh, the longer I was in Detroit with my grassroots fundraising, I started to get interested in uses for uh, productive uses for vacant land sure. and redevelopment. And I uh, kind of honed in on the McDougal Hunt neighborhood because of its location just east of Eastern Market and surrounded by neighborhoods that are all getting invested and felt like this neighborhood 
uh, needed some attention. Well, you know, and, and again, you've taken it on yourself to do this. This, uh, I, and I'm sure at some point there's going to be some coordination, uh, you know, with with some of the other programs that the city is working on in terms of neighborhood revitalization. But talk about the importance of just diving in yourself and getting getting it kickstarted. Um, well, and, and I, picking I, a place that that maybe wasn't on the radar. Well, I can't. I'm not doing it by myself. I actually have great partners in Detroit. I'm working with the Eastside Community Network, who's, sure. who's actually taking the lead on the project. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wear a somewhat untraditional hat being uh, a foundation because I'm a little bit more involved in the day-to-day because it was my vision. But as far as you know, how the program is being managed, particularly with community engagement, you know, I'm from Boston. Who am I to come in and... Of course. Yeah, yeah. so it's really important. It's, it is very important in this town, yes. Yeah, and it's very important for the local community to have a voice. And so Eastside Community Network has been able to do a tremendous amount of engagement in the community through different events and focus groups. And we now have a very sophisticated communication platform of regular meetings, working groups for efficiency. So it's a nice balance of getting the neighbors involved and supporting them at the same time. Well, and the ECN, I, I used to do a lot of work with them as well. Orlando, how you doing, buddy? Um, you know, they do know the neighborhoods. The people are active. They're involved. Uh, you know, what have you learned from that process thus far about what you want to do? And, and has it impacted, you know, we won't get into specific numbers about housing and stuff like that yet, but how has that neighborhood interaction impacted what you intend to do there? That's a very good question. You know, I um, I think really it's... Sorry, he's distracting me over there. (laughs) Taking pictures. That would be Dan Austin, everybody. I think what's important is to know what you know and what you don't know. And I'm the first one to admit what I don't know. And I find partnering with the right people that know what you know, what to do is probably the best thing for me at this point. And I've learned a lot about how uh, Eastside Community Network goes about community engagement and the importance of listening to the local population's voice and uh, having them involved in the process. So the community has been involved from the inception, from once the vision was created, to being involved in planning uh, their, how they want their neighborhood to look. You know... Everybody wants investment in their neighborhood, but there's also a little bit of fear and reluctance that goes along with that sometimes. You get fear that somebody's might be displaced or that there's going to be some form of gentrification. There's a huge discussion around that in the city of Detroit right now. Uh, what can you do to, to you know, let people know that this investment is actually going to benefit those who are already there? Because that, that is something that people worry about. Yeah, there's definitely uh, a lack of trust, particularly for an outsider coming in. And there's been a history of uh, people taking advantage of that. So, again, partnering with a local uh, voice that has a track record and just time and listening to the community and sharing. You know, I've spent some time producing literature on who I am, what the foundation I've been involved with has done, and sitting down one-on-one with certain residents and explaining to them exactly what our motivation is. And, you know, there's no financial incentive for us. We're not developers. In fact, we're the opposite. We're trying to prevent the local population from being displaced due to gentrification. And that's kind of the basis behind the whole vision. Because of the investment in all the surrounding neighborhoods, we feel it's just a matter of time that that developers are going to be interested in this neighborhood. So we want to protect the vacant land and we want to protect the current population and, you know, provide quality of life enhancements, starting with, uh, 
just fixing up the existing housing stock and creating a blight-free neighborhood. And, and that's a big part of what you're going to be doing. There's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, stabilization of, of existing housing, um, you know, before we start talking about things like infill. I mean, that's, I think, the, the most important thing that has to happen in the city. Yeah, so we our priorities are first existing housing stock stabilization. Uh, second is productive uses for the vacant land. And the third would be new housing. And, yeah, infill housing, missing middle housing, um, you know, we, we have not yet partnered with a developer. Uh, we have pretty strong social values, so we only want to work with somebody that shares our values. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, green space is going to be an important part of this as well. I know that you're, you're talking about, you know, Bailey Park, uh, and, and that's going to be something that is going to be a big central part of this. Yes. You know, from your experience in Boston um, and, and now here, talk about the importance of that green space from a psychological perspective of the people that are, that are living around it. Yeah, I think parks are very important to you, uh, from a from a number of different aspects. You know, health, green, active locations. Uh, Bailey Park has been an amazing story where a woman named Katrina Watkins lives in the neighborhood, and she started to acquire land from the land bank slowly over time for first leasing, then buying, mm-hmm. and she's up to a point where she has almost the entire city block and uh, has been creating a park from the ground up, and a lot of the support has been in kind by neighbors, and she's applied for a few grants, she's gotten a few, she has uh, received a Kaboom grant, and so they're going to be building a playground in the next couple of weeks. And we've hired a landscape design company to kind of design out the entire park. So it's it's moving along in a really nice direction, and the neighbors are very excited to have a park. Well, and it is also something that everybody in the neighborhood can enjoy. I mean, obviously, exactly. you know, you start working on housing, that may impact a few people. You know, that it's live a community-driven it, project. Yeah. Exactly. So, is it important to, to put that out there first? I think yes. I think uh, having a community-based green space is very important. Uh, it also just happened to be lucky with timing, but yeah, I mean, definitely a community or a community-oriented uh, initiative in the neighborhood is a high priority. Well, I should remind folks, my guest is uh, Rachel Alternative and with the Alternative Foundation, also the Cedar Tree Foundation. Uh, we're talking about some investment in the McDougal-Hunt neighborhood on the east side of Detroit. Uh, I want to read something that, that you had in some of the materials here. and says, when complete, the McDougal-Hunt neighborhood initiative will result in the framework and foundation for an equitable, thriving community whose future is driven by its residents. Uh, that's a lot different than saying, we're going to have a brand new neighborhood. I like the use of the words framework and, and foundation uh, that the citizens can then build upon. Talk a little bit about what you envision the, the citizens' role in being to, to build on that foundation that you put in place. Well, the city of Detroit has done a lot in strategic neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And what's nice about McDougal Hunt is that it is a smaller neighborhood, so it's a more manageable size. Uh, but we also s- share the same criteria of a strategic neighborhood, which include a central park, Bailey Park. You know, we have connectivity around the uh, surrounding streets where there are buses. We're adjacent to Eastern Market where they're increasing their pedestrian walkway. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a strong commercial corridor along Gratiot. We're helping with housing. Uh, and it's we're highly coordinated, as I think I mentioned in the beginning. And, you know, it's a, it's a people-driven plan. What in speaking with the gov- the city, such as Arthur Jemison, sure. he said that they have strong planning initiatives for high density neighborhoods, but they don't have a lot for low density neighborhoods. So 
not only are we interested in creating a sustainable redevelopment neighborhood, uh, we'd like to in- involve as many innovative initiatives as possible, such as uh, uh, um, sorry, community land trust. Sure. We're working with the Office, Office of Sustainability on a pilot project. Um, we would like to, in the ultimate long-term goal, create a blueprint that can be replicated in other neighborhoods throughout Detroit or even outside Detroit of how you can work with the local community to have a sustainable redevelopment plan in a lower-density neighborhood. Well, I, I know a couple of people that here at Community Land Trust, and they're just jumping for joy right now because they've been asking for this for a long time. Uh, they're not that easy to, to work. Yeah. But we've been, we've if, been if meeting they're successful, with, they're really cool. They are really cool, and... You know, we're still in the learning process. We do not have a housing development partner as we speak. Yeah. Um, we've been meeting with the you know Department of Housing and Revitalization. We've met with some organizations like Grounded Solutions that specialize in community land trust. So we're still in the discovery phase of getting the information to see how it could work. In the ideal world, we'd like to take the, the land bank houses and turn them into a community land trust. Well, I, I know a couple people over there if you need to talk to them. But, um, Thanks. <laughs> in fact, I do believe the director is up here right now. Um, you know, I, I want to mention that this is there because you mentioned that art is going to be an important part of this project. The Heidelberg project is right smack Absolutely. dab in the middle of this neighborhood. Um, you know, pretty iconic. Yep. How do you incorporate that into this project? And, and is this something that, uh, you know, you've approached them already, I assume, to, to yes. deal with this? So I can't say that I'm approaching them personally, but Donna Givens from Eastside Community sure. Network, um, they have a seat at our table in our planning, and we have a seat at their table. They are undergoing their own strategic plan. I think it's Heidelberg 2.0 or 3.0, where they would like to have a an art community, and we would like to work with Heidelberg. Um, as I'm sure you know, there's some history there. Yes. And so uh, what we've done is drafted a community partnership agreement where the Heidelberg will follow certain um, certain aspects like putting up their hours or following certain guidelines that help make the um, local community comfortable and vice versa. And so that community partnership has actually been filed with the city and they have used that to help change the zoning on one of their buildings so that they're able to move forward and redevelop their numbers house. So I think in the nutshell, there's um, we've come a long way in the communication because we're at each other's table in the planning process and we would ideally like to have one um, combined plan moving forward and it's it's working in the right direction well, well moving Rachel, in the right direction i mean you know you come to a conference like this one uh you have an opportunity to talk to just about anybody you need to to, to get the ball moving on this in a number of different what's success for you uh for, from coming up to something like this um and what does success look like when this plan is done well um you know, we, as I mentioned, would like it to be a sustainable neighborhood, uh, so that includes stabilizing the existing housing, um, managing va- the vacant land with productive uses, you know, and there, that could include a whole number of things. Um, you know, I, we'd like to have affordable housing. We'd like to have unique initiatives like a community land trust, maybe a homestead. Um, you know, there's urban agriculture. There's a whole host of things. Uh, but, you know, we want this plan to be successful and to be used as a template for further 
um, initiatives in additional neighborhoods. And, and so at what point are you going to determine whether or not this is something that the Alternative Foundation is going to continue on? I mean, is this a one-and-done sort of neighborhood thing, or do you, do you have visions for doing this in a number of places? I, I, I'm not putting, putting you on the spot a little bit here. Yeah, but. Uh, no problem. I mean, the Alternative Foundation is a small foundation that spun off, yeah. so I do not have deep dollars, and... This year alone, I've spent over a half a million dollars in McDougal Hunt, and that's not sustainable over the long term. I mean, I provided the seed funding that will hopefully attract additional investors, um, and I think our track record to date has proven that we are organized, we're ambitious, you know, we, we're we're ready to move forward with support. Well, very much so, and uh, congratulations on getting this getting this bar. Uh, it's a Thanks. big deal. Uh, McDougal Hunt is a neighborhood deserving of this kind of support. So, Great. Rachel Alternative, thank you for your time. Thank you. All right. Okay. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. The Craig Folly Show is made possible in part by Deadline Detroit. One-stop shopping for all your news. Also, home to Deadline Detroit TV, which includes The Zip, a weekly wrap-up of the week's news with some humor. Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news.